0: Welcome to the Think Theism Podcast.
1: To help guide, this is an overview of our past semester. This is everything that we covered. So if there were any like hanging chads or any just left over discussions that never really got resolved, now would be a great time to bring that up. Is God
2: outside of space-time?
1: Good question. So, Andrew, is God outside of space-time? No.
0: Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah, maybe this wasn't a good first question, but we'll see. So, what is time? So, this is the first question you have to ask. You don't, events. Okay, so, yeah. A, 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 any sequence that... Uh, of events that can be characterized by a relationship of before and after um, is the most general definition you could give Um, the question is what does that really mean so there's two different theories about what time really is um, and how that relates to how we experience time the first view is called the A theory of time um, or the common sense view of time basically this says that Um, Temporal becoming that we experience is actually real. That means now we exist and in the future we will exist But this is the moment that exists right now Um, Moments in the past and moments in the future don't actually exist Um, So this is the, the Common sense view of time, which is that Now is real. The future will be real when it comes. The past was real, but is no longer um The second view is called the B theory of time. This is the view, um, it's a view that's influenced by modern um, relativistic cosmology. Um, It's the view that time is analogous to a dimension of space um, and that you can, well therefore you can travel through time just like you would through space, not us necessarily, but in In principle you could Um, it's just a dimension that we we can't we're like forced to move along at a certain speed but that the consequence of this is that all moments in time are equally real there's just some weird fluke that makes us experience this particular slice of time um, as now and that this is moving forward Um, but in reality all moments of time always exist there, there is no state of affairs wherein the future does not yet exist. You see, does that make sense? So the consequence of these two theories of time, um, I mean, there's big consequences um, when we're trying to understand how God relates to time, and ultimately it boils down to which theory of time you ascribe to. If you ascribe to the A theory of time, God is in time. Not because he's somehow subject to a uh, a spatial temporal um, material universe, but because only now exists, and so God moves through time because time is merely the progression of exists or of events, and God exists now, at all nows, right? Um, so it's meaningless to say that God is outside of time on the a theory of time because t- time isn't a place that you can be outside of. On the B theory of time, however, time is exactly the same as a a, uh, dimension of space. So you pretty much have to say that God is outside of time because if he's not outside of time, it would be like saying that God has a spatial location. He exists at some coordinates in in space and that's where God is. Um, But we know that God is immaterial and he does not exist as part of the physical universe. So if you hold to the B theory of time, God has to be outside of that. Um, In my opinion, the A theory of time is better for a couple of reasons. One, it is the common sense view. It's the view that we naturally behave as if we believe. We act as if now is real and the past and the future aren't real yet. It makes more sense theologically as well. On the B theory of time, you have this issue where there is never a state of affairs wherein... Sin is not existent anymore. So on the A theory of time, there's a point of time when God writes everything and now all that exists is good, right? And there there's no more sin, suffering, death outside of hell, right? We well and later. <laughs> Zach has his own thoughts about that. On the B theory of time, any future state is no more real or more important than a current state any progression towards something better is merely an illusion that we experience because tomorrow and today are equally real if you you know progress towards something good that good thing at the end doesn't necessarily like that's not summing up all the bad things it just exists along with all the bad things
1: perhaps a good analogy of this would would be to think of it in terms of space so if something bad is happening at a certain location the further away you are from it doesn't in any way make it less real. It just changes your relative location. So if there's suffering and whatnot in your life and you're along the spatial line of things and you're further away from it, it still exists. You just happen to be further away. Whereas the A theory of time, there is a period of suffering and then that period of suffering actually ends and is no longer the case. So to summarize, if you hold to a B theory of time, you have to say God is outside of time. If you hold to an A theory of time, then that question is kind of meaningless.
0: There is no outside of time. John makes this point
1: in like his podcast. Yes. Where he says like for him it helps he's a B theorist, so mm-hmm. like, and
0: he says that it helps him explain I guess evil away. Because if God had I think he says along those lines, like if God has dealt with evil at one point, then it has been dealt with
1: you know, throughout time, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, what, do you, what, what do you make of that? So, there are certain benefits to, to the B-theory theologically. So, you can look at the conquest of evil by God. You can say that God actually has conquered all of evil right now. It's, it's true right now that God has conquered evil. I think a more relevant puzzle than the the conquering of evil would be how are the Old Testament saints justified? And B-theorists can say that at the time of Abraham, it was equally real that Christ was suffering on the cross and paying for the atonement, so God actually had an ontologically actualized state of affairs of Jesus atoning for sin that He could then ontologically apply to Abraham. If you're on an atheist, if you're an atheist, you don't have those resources. There are benefit, there are benefits and downsides either way. So if you are an atheist, you have to deal with the question: of What grounds justification, or uh, what grounds our hope of the future, for example? But if you're a B theorist, you also have to deal with what does it mean for God to conquer evil? Is there any ontological reality to that?
2: Did Jesus go to hell between his death and his resurrection?
1: Yes. Because the Apostles' Was, Creed says. somebody so. like to quote
0: <laughs> the Apostles' Creed? <laughs> does anybody, Hambi, have it memorized with the hell in there? Yes. I have it up. Credo and Diempatrium. Not in Latin. <laughs> it's it's actually a big deal. Like, like people divide d- denominations <laughs> based yeah. on whether they include the descended into hell in their apostles creed or not.
1: Yeah, it depends. It depends entirely on what you mean by that. So the majority of that discussion comes from a line in Second Peter, which honestly, Second Peter is one of the weirdest epistles. Um, but there's a line in there about Jesus descending into the earth uh, and then preaching the gospel to the. Um, uh, to the rebellious souls from the days of Noah. And the typical interpretation of that is uh, well, actually, I don't know if it's typical, but the one that grounds the, that point of view is that Jesus actually went down into hell and preached the gospel to the demons and the souls and the rebellious people that were bound in there. Uh, and then there's division over was he preaching to convert them or was he preaching an announcement, whatever. Uh, I think that's an immaterial discussion because that's uh, kind of a weird interpretation, and I don't think that it's true. Uh, So no, I don't think Jesus went into hell in the sense that he descended into this spiritual realm and and did things. What I would interpret that to mean is that uh, Jesus was under the curse of God. And I think that's a much more, first it's more biblically sound because it says specifically in Galatians uh, that uh, where Paul draws um, a passage in Deuteronomy, whosoever dies on a tree uh, is under the curse of God. Uh, And he specifically says Jesus died on a tree, uh, thus validating that and being under the curse of God. If that's what you mean by hell, then I would say yes. But I don't think that's a good interpretation of Second Peter, that he descended into the, the nether realms and, and preached to people. There's one really weird interpretation which said that Jesus time-traveled to the days of Noah and actually preached as like Melchizedek or someone like that mm-hmm. to the people. Not actually Melchizedek, but like something kind of like that. That is not the interpretation I hold to because I'm an atheist, so I don't think that uh, time travel is possible, even for Jesus there are other more naturalistic interpretations i think are better all
2: right go for it so
1: i don't like the look on your face
2: <laughs> um, in the old testament a lot of the kings had lots of wives
1: yes. but current christianity says you know only one wife why mm. did god allow kings such as solomon to have so many wives mm. good question so in order to answer this thoroughly, we have to have a in-depth discussion on Christian sexual ethics. But unfortunately, Andrew won't let that happen. So, so in summary, the, um, so there, there are a variety of views on, on how to interpret specifically Old Testament weirdness. One of the most common views and the view that I take is what's called the, the return to the ideal. In Genesis chapter one and chapter two as well, It's a description of what the ideal relationship between human beings to each other and human beings to God. Adam and Eve are shown to be, they're workers in the field, but they don't, you know, they take joy in their work equal to each other. So there's equality between men and women. They're in a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman, and they're also in perfect harmony with their relationship to God. So that's the ideal that's being outlined in uh, Genesis 1 to 2. Whether you take that literally or not, it doesn't actually matter but clearly we're not in that ideal situation. So the purpose of the Old Testament law was to be a means to bring humanity back to that ideal. Now polygamy is one of those things that is its initial motivations were probably not economic, but by the time of the uh, by the time of the Israelites it it was an economic reality. So if a woman was to be discarded by her husband, she essentially would, you know, there would be no economic support, she would die of starvation. Part of the reason there is, uh, or, or, or part of the stipulations that you see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, are ways in which men who marry the, who marry uh, women, that if they become displeased with her, they don't just disappear or or die to the due to the effects of you know, living in a harsh environment. And so polygamy was one of the social institutions that allowed for for that uh, that allowed for protection of women. Unfortunately, as you can imagine, it was not ideal. Uh, in fact, it was not actually Inherently a moral thing, but it was something that God allowed because the alternative was that women probably would die. However, there's something that we see um, from the Old Testament into the New Testament is this transition into the expectation is monogamy. So one of the classic examples is Paul, in multiple of his epistles, outlines uh, the requirements for being a deacon or the equivalent would be like a pastor. Uh, one of the requirements is that he has to be the husband of one wife and he has to love his family and care for his children. And moreover, you also see other implicit details throughout the New Testament, that the expectation in the Christian society was monogamy and not polygamy. Your, uh, your question actually presupposes the answer. Why did God allow these things? Because God didn't actually put his stamp of approval on it. He merely said, this is something that I'm going to allow, but I'm going to put restrictions on it. A parallel case would be Jesus's exegesis of uh, divorce, or his explanation of it, divorce, whenever he said that Moses allowed divorce in the old times because of the hardness of hearts. The alternative there was also the same. Uh, If you couldn't divorce someone, if you couldn't divorce your wife, you would probably have to kill her to get out of the marriage. Not a good alternative. So divorce was something that, again, was not ideal, but it was something that was bringing the people of Israel back to to the ideal situation where men and women are equal, marriage is monogamous, um, etc. The other note is empirically, polygamy never turns out good in the Old Testament, ever. There's always something that goes wrong with polygamy. Whether in the case of Abraham, where he accidentally founds Islam due to polygamy, um, Saul, the entire kingdom of Solomon fell apart because of polygamy. Isaac also had major problems with polygamy, although he ended up you know, founding the nation of Israel, but you know, there were issues associated with that. Every, every single time, it was something very terrible. So what's the takeaway? You know, it's, it's definitely not ideal, and it works out. so why was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden of eden that's the question what Um,
2: do y'all
1: think i'm actually not sure what i'm not sure if you and i have the same answer on this one to provide free will without the existence of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil they had no means of rebellion against God. couldn't simply just cursing god be a rebellion well if the tree
2: of the knowledge of good and evil i mean would they have even known to curse god you know
0: He gave them one thing that they could do that was within their power and knowledge to do that he told them not to do. Yeah, I think you could say that obviously he wanted them to have the ability to do something contrary to his will. And it very well may be that the, the, the actual tree of knowledge of good and evil is, is a metaphor for something else potentially, but... But it's—I mean—it still follows. It's something that he, they, human beings, were told not to do.
1: Yeah. The uh, so the metaphorical interpretation of this is uh, the Adam and Eve taking from the knowledge of, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a representation of um, humankind supplanting God as their source for morality. So the the term there is moral autonomy. Um, so at that point, once they uh, partook of the tree, they essentially said that we're not going to trust God and follow his precepts. We're going to define our own way, which irrespective of how you take the, um, the narrative of Genesis literally or non-literally, that actually would be um, an accurate description of uh, the fundamental problem with, um, with humanity is leaving God's precepts and making our own rules and then following them in those ways. So, I think that would be the, the basic gist of it.
0: I think that would make exactly one person happy.
1: So I'm, on, I've on never been happy. On the urethra uh, dilemma.
0: Yeah. yeah the, a, the, u, okay. urethra. The, the urethra dilemma? Whatever okay, I'm, I'm you want. I can't up on my So like the typical response is that it's uh, a false economy and that God is the good. Or
1: like why can't the ejection like the same objection just be pushed back further? On his nature, and say, so it, are these so like God is the good. So like, are these things that God wills good because it's part of His nature, or it, you know what I'm saying like, is this? You could, could you say yeah. the same thing and just move it back?
2: Um, so like, you know, the question is like, does God will because it's good, or is it good because God wills it? Well, are these things? Are these?
0: Well, I mean, the whole point is that it's not. If it's part of His nature, it's not part of His. It's not from His will, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're saying that God is good; it's part, it's His nature. It does mean that He couldn't have been otherwise, right? He's a necessary being. Um, but there's not really a dilemma there anymore because if you say that goodness is a property of the nature of God, and God is a necessary being, you're just basically saying God is necessarily good, and everything else just falls out of that. But there's no, there's no dilemma. Like there's no other horn of the dilemma, right? In the euthyphro, you're saying either there's some external thing to God that sits above him called goodness, or goodness is merely arbitrary in that it's just merely whatever God happens to say. Um, In this case, we're saying, no, there is this almost platonic set of things that define what goodness is, but those things are all located located within the being of God, such that they do exist, and they are. But they're grounded in the existence of God, so that you kind of take those dilemmas, you take the dilemma, and you compress it down because now it's no longer the question of something that's arbitrary or that is um, separate from God, but it's directly from God. So it is both what He says and who He is in a way that you can't really. You can't really form that dilemma anymore. What did you say earlier? Something about um, death and suffering not going away or is going away. Or <laughs> so you want to know about <coughs> Zachary's view on hell? Yes. What? Eternal torment. Oh, what? So outline for us the possible views on hell mm. and why you hold your particular view, Zachary. Mm, that's a good one. And so- are you a heretic? <laughs>
1: Well, I am technically a heretic because I because there have been so many church councils and declarations that I disagree with. Uh, in the technical sense, yes, because I disagree <laughs> with everything from the Catholic Church. So, by definition, I'm a heretic. Um, everything. everything they have not a single thing is right. <laughs> uh, so, but is it uh, is it a view that is commonly held? No. Uh, but what is the view? Let's let's get in that and we'll analyze that in a minute. Uh, so the view of hell, um, so everyone agrees that, um, actually, no, let me back up a little bit. Uh, at the end of time, everyone is going to go somewhere, as as they say. Uh, the Those who have been redeemed in Christ will go, uh, and those who have been justified, will go into eternal life, uh, paradise, heaven, if you will, uh, the new creation. But that's not the controversial one. Everyone's okay with that. Uh, there's a view, on the far end, there's a view called Universalism, which says that um, actually every single person is going to go uh, into the new creation and be redeemed. There's a view called um, uh, Purgatorial Universalism, which says that everyone will eventually get there, but they may need to be pur- uh, purified for a little while. Uh, then there's a view, um, the like the classic Catholic view, uh, which is spelled out in detail in Dante's Inferno, uh, where you have... The, the paradise, You have paradise, and you have uh, the inferno, and then you have uh, the purgatory in between. And essentially what the view says is you can go into the new creation if you're redeemed or if you've done enough, etc. If you're not on that threshold, but you're not bad enough to go into uh, everlasting torment, then you are put in purgatory uh, where you just sort of hang out until either you're refined to go into heaven or you have enough merits given to you from your family, things like that. And then regarding hell itself, there are essentially two main views, which says that uh, the first one is that the, the damned in hell will experience for all of eternity conscious torment in some way or another, whether by fire or physical pain or uh, just being alone in darkness. Whatever it is, it's extremely unpleasant. You're consciously aware of it, and it lasts for eternity. The other view, which is sometimes called either annihilationism or conditional immortality, Those who are redeemed are given the gift of eternal life, and those that are not redeemed do not receive the gift of eternal life. And so by necessity, they simply die. They're executed. In other words, they experience eternal death in the most natural sense of the the term. And that's really, in Protestant circles, that's where the big debate is. Uh, Very few people really endorse universalism seriously within conservative Protestant circles. Uh, So naturally, I hold the more bizarre view. I, I would hold to the annihilationist point of view because... The text of Scripture is predominantly or it's predominantly populated by descriptions of death, or imagery of death in the terms of execution. So one of the most common ones is Isaiah sixty-six, where it says that the, the enemies of the Lord they rebel against Yahweh, and then he slays them all. And the description is trying to remember it exactly, but essentially there's a field of corpses and they're burning, and the, and the, there are all these dead bodies, and the fire is not quenched, and the worm doesn't die. They were, they're being constantly consumed. Uh, and then another example from Jesus is he describes the wheat and the tares at the end of time, and the wheat is harvested and uh, taken on into the next season, and then the tares are sent into the fire, and they're consumed and burned up. I would take the view, I would actually contend that all descriptions from Genesis all the way up through uh, Jude are, well, maybe not Jude, are overwhelmingly descriptions of death, execution, destruction and ruin. Only in maybe one line in Jude and two lines in Revelation does the view the idea of eternal torment come into view. And in those cases, I actually don't find it very convincing because the most predominant line in Revelation says that the the beast and the false prophet and the devil are sent into the lake of fire where they are tormented forever and ever. But at the end of that passage uh, death itself is also thrown in to the lake of fire and is tormented, and so for me it seems very. It, it doesn't seem to be very reasonable to base and to read it that backwards. To take this really ambiguous passage, which is clearly metaphorical, if death itself is being thrown into the fire, I don't know how you take that literally. But it seems hermeneutically irresponsible to take that very ambiguous, extremely apocalyptic imagery at the end of Revelation and then project it back on all of these other instances whenever everything leading up to that is descriptions of destruction, death, corpses, and execution. And that's the only reason I hold to that.
0: And now to be clear, you would probably anger all of the liberals who hold to this view and obviously all the conservatives who don't hold to this view because not only do you hold that probably people are annihilated, but they're they're probably also tormented before they're annihilated. So you you get... you know, the worst of both, yes, of both exactly. Of you. Yeah,
1: Tormented proportionally to how much of a bad person they are Yeah, were. but
0: you do avoid the argument that you have sometimes with people that says, um, you know, why, how is it that God torments people eternally for finite, a finite number of sins or, you know, finite yeah. sins. You get eternal punishment, but... For a finite crime seems unbalanced, right? Yeah. So this yeah. sidesteps that issue.
1: It sidesteps it, <clears throat> but intrinsically that's a bad argument anyway.
0: Well, yes. I it's, mean, it's, a lot of you know, conservatives still say that that's a bad problem. argument, but but you have to give an argument against it, unless you're you, and then you can just say, nah. That's a fun topic. And what about the rich guy who dies and asks for a drink of water
1: while he's in hell Cause he's he in, he in hell? eternal flames? Is he in hell? First of all, this is a
0: parable, right? Yeah, well, powerful.
1: before we do that, that, come on, that's the weak argument. <laughs> the the absolute maximum that you can conclude from that parable, which is a parable, yes. Yeah, yeah, but but the most you can conclude from that is what's called the intermediate state. That particular uh, story is not meant to describe the final state. It is only meant to describe a man who died and went to Abraham's bosom, and another man who went to Hades. So even if you took it exactly literally and to its maximum extent, it's consistent with either view.
0: Annihilationism doesn't necessarily mean that people are annihilated immediately. Yeah. One thing.
1: Well, actually, that is heretical because the uh, the official teaching of scripture is there is a general resurrection. Okay. The people uh, are judged, right? So. Yeah, there's a general you resurrection. You don't exist. Yeah, everyone is resurrected, the righteous into everlasting life, and then the uh, the condemned go into um, everlasting death. That's, that's really about it. There's a huge debate over the intermediate state, like whether, because some people would say that if you're redeemed, you die and you're immediately in the presence of Jesus, but not like in the new creation or in heaven or what have you. Uh, and if you're not redeemed, then you are placed in this other place where you're away from God. I think that's kind of a pointless debate because the text is underdeterminative either way. That's speculation. I don't think it's really worth anyone's time.
2: Y'all are going to hate me. I want to connect this topic back to the original topic of um,
0: yes time and so is time like ongoing for like heaven and hell it's a good question does time end that actually at yeah. the end question. of time
1: so something that is particularly bad and it's the catholic church's fault no I'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> what's really bad in the western church particularly is the view of the end times Everyone sort of focuses in on the millennium and all that nonsense, but the more important thing is most people don't have a biblically grounded view of what actually happens after after the uh, after the end of days. Typically, the view is, oh, you know, the redeemed go up into the clouds and play harps, and the condemned go down to the fiery pits where they're poked with unpleasant things for a long time. That's the like that's the standard view, but. In reality, the the promises was called the new heavens and the new earth, which is a, a more or less Hebrew colloquialism that means a new universe or a new creation for shorthand. So what actually happens at the end of time is that everything is rebuilt into an incorruptible state. So it's not like this weird timeless place in heaven. It's actually going to be just like it is now, except better. So after the end of time, whenever we say the end of time, that's actually not true. What happens is everything is recreated and time sort of starts all over again but here's an interesting thought experiment what if God decided just to pack everything up and destroy everything destroy all of space all of time all of creation and just go back to being by himself alone timeless spaceless etc even in that case time would still go on because as we've defined time it's the relationship between before and after well there would be a time T such that the universe existed and there would be a time, T1, such that the universe did not exist. So there was a before the universe was destroyed and then after the universe destroyed. Once God lets the, I guess you could say, the temporal cat out of the bag, like you can't really get it back in, because by definition, time will always be progressing, irrespective of whether you're in a new creation or even if God is by himself. If you're interested in this, there's a book called Time and Eternity by William Lane Craig, which goes into a lot of these details. In fact, that's actually the phrase he uses, the uh, temporal cat out of the bag. If
2: The cat is in a box. No.
1: (laughs) (laughs) On that, the purpose of Schrodinger's cat was not to make clever uh, t-shirts. It was meant to show the absurdity of superposition. It was not actually meant to be a legitimate thing. It was meant to say that you can't transfer quantum effects into the Newtonian world. Like, it's incoherent. Schrodinger's cat is not actually dead or actually alive or anything like that. Well, it's
0: either dead or alive. Yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> actually dead and alive, yeah. So, it's one of those examples where someone in academia gives an example, and then as it gets filtered down, it eventually just becomes like a meme, and then everyone <laughs> thinks, and then it shows up on, uh, like, one of those Facebook fake science pages, you know? It's like, science is awesome dot jpeg or whatever. <laughs> Can we
0: talk about the NFL draft?
1: Sure. No. Yeah, I think that Miles Garrett going to Cleveland was a really That's terrible the thing. Worst thing that could yes. have possibly happened. My what prediction, yeah. Expect? My prediction: three seasons, he's transferred to the Redskins after he tears his ACL. Although my Carolina, prediction, Carolina picked up a. Cleveland is
0: now going to be the number four team in the country because yeah. Miles Garrett. <laughs> what does it take to be a Christian?
1: How's that? Good question. So first, find a local Presbyterian church. Mm-hmm. Okay. Second, be Let's infant baptized. Stands. <laughs> oh, now infant <laughs> baptism is, is required, okay Yes That's actually That actually is a pretty good one Because you and I kind of disagree on this So, baptism is Specifically Protestant point of view here So baptism is an ordinance uh, Given to be a member of the church Is it for believers only Or is it for
0: believers and infants? So these, there are two types of baptism, right? Two views, right? One is called credo baptism credo meaning belief in latin one is called pedo baptism pedo meaning child in latin so the disagreement here so again like a lot of these discussions this hinges on like two verses right um, so there's there's the the verse that talks about what's his name well you haven't actually defined it. <coughs> okay credo baptism means that you are That baptism is the entry point into um, the the Christian community and so you have to make an intellectual ascent to do that. Pedobaptism um, says that you are entering into the community at baptism but you're not making any sort of intellectual ascent towards it. Um, It's merely just symbolic of being part of the community, um, not symbolic of your particular relationship with god so you can you baptize infants basically saying these children are in our community of christians um, not to say these children are christians see there's there's a distinguished um, a, a distinction there so i was saying th- this depends depends on just a couple of verses right uh, the one verse what's the guy's name so basically a guy becomes a christian right and in the text in acts it says he and his whole household was baptized. So this is the basic defense of of pedo-baptism and saying that presumably everyone in the household didn't make an intellectual assent, but they were baptized. On the other hand, that's like a really thin argument, right? I mean, are there any other good verses to support pedo-baptism other than just a whole
1: systematic? Yeah, I mean, the systematic view is kind of the main defense. And that's one example of it.
0: So pedo-baptism tends to be a view held by more reformed camps. And so you have this big covenantal view of all of Christianity, right? And so that's kind of the underlying framework for Petobaptism. What Zach and I have talked about on a couple of t- occasions is basically we, we have two different things that are happening, right? So most people say that you should do something with your children as like a symbol to show that they are part of the Christian community. Well, for, well, to put that, yeah,
1: to put it in like broader context, the idea is in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were a covenant community with God. And if you were a member of that covenant, you were given a sign, uh, particularly the males. So they were circumcised to show they were mem- members of, the, of that covenant. But Paul later says in Romans, not everyone who was of Israel was of true Israel. And so there's a distinction between Israel, the covenant community, and Israel, the believing people that were circumcised of the heart. And so the idea is that whenever you transition into the Christian covenant, pretty much everyone agrees that there are two events, and one of them is showing that you know your children are part of the, part of the community yes. in some sense. This is
0: either satisfied for the pedo-baptist by infant baptism, or it's satisfied by the credo-baptist with something like a, a baby dedication or something like that then the, the second event you have is the point at which someone enters into basically they make intellectual assent to the truths of Christianity and you are presuming at that point that they are not merely just a member of the covenant community but are actually making a positive commitment uh, to God so different right so for the the baptists typically this is something like confirmation or you know the different denominations have different Um, different phases and different terms for this but it's some event usually that children go through in their early teens where they demonstrate that they understand what their denomination believes and and say that they believe it whereas for most credo Baptists this is the point at which you are baptized right you make this intellectual ascent typically you have a pastor who talks to the child and says do you believe these things? You understand them, they go through them with it, and if they determine that they um, understand the gospel and believe it, then they are baptized, and the baptism is the symbol of not merely joining the community, but, but making an intellectual assent to the, the, the precepts, right? Basically, the argument just boils down to which of these two points is the appropriate location for baptism? should it be merely entry into the covenant community or, or should it also be intellectual assent so obviously for an adult that enters into the church these are always condensed right but in the case of children these two events are separated so which one should be baptized should baptism be and like i said there's there's very scanty evidence and what's very interesting is both of these views were practiced in you know the first century going back to the very beginning there was that a divergence of these views and they've never really been reconciled and they obviously exist in wide numbers today you have to be a presbyterian to be a pedobaptist so
1: <laughs> yeah that's most okay.
0: true that's a little different though like
1: yeah that, actually that that's actually a good point
2: which not which i'm not going a little bit off but I'm not sure how much people know, but we actually do both. of them. Um, so we'll yeah. go through with credo-baptism, uh, both and pedo-baptism. But we also have, um, since we use the sacraments of initiation, we call them, which is a series of three different um, sacraments. Uh, Baptism is the first one, followed by communion, and then finally confirmation into the faith as a full member of the Christian community. Um, and with credo-baptism, that all occurs at each individual. So we go through with all three at the same time. But there's a, um, requires a conscious, like the intellectual uh, acceptance of it. But, um The baptism, is more of a gradual, and it's left up to the parents and the godparents to educate and, catech- and cate- catechize, would be the correct word, I suppose. Okay.
0: But the Catholic Church never rebaptizes people, right? This is
2: actually correct, because we accept, we acknowledge the baptism of, this actually goes back to the four marks of the church that we profess, which is one holy Catholic and apostolic Catholic actually translates to universal so yes. we actually accept the baptism of all uh, denominations of the Christian Church as one baptism in Christ and then we'll follow through with the other sacraments of initiation com- uh, communion and confirmation to become a full member of the Catholic
0: Church. So historically this is a very important thing. Um, re-baptism is a big deal most people don't think about that but um, in the third century, there was a controversy called the Donatist controversy. It was basically an internal um, debate within um, the Western Christian church about how you should handle bishops and deacons and people that had given up copies of the scripture during persecution uh, and you know, and denied Christianity and then came back um, because one group said, you know, in some instances, we let them back into the church. Another group said, no, you should never. Those were the Donatists. And the Donatists actually split with the rest of the church and then started rebaptizing people. And so this is a big deal because not only did they say, we don't feel like we can be part of the main body of the church. We have to separate ourselves to purify our body of believers. But they said, we are going to rebaptize people who have been baptized by um, the the broader church, which is saying that, that we believe that basically those people, even though doctrinally they're identical, we believe that the main body of the church is illegitimate and that they are not, that basically baptism doesn't count, right? So this is a big deal. And there were wars about this and people died. And, yeah. and like I said, no doctrinal differences. This is a church split that happened 1,700 years ago. And there was not even any doctrinal cha- differences. They just didn't like rebaptizing people, and they didn't like the idea of having people um, in the church that had denied the church during the persecutions.
1: Yep, one of the whole yeah, and one of the holdovers from that is um, uh, there. The big phrase or the big catchphrase was called ex opera um, opera yeah ex opera operandi and ex opera operando. I can't remember. But anyway, the idea was, is baptism effective intrinsically? So like, is it the, the baptism itself that is acceptable or is it the person performing the baptism, priest or, or what have you? And that's where the debate come, came in. And that's still a holdover because there are some people who say that even if the person performing it is perfectly orthodox and acceptable, but they say it wrong, it's not, it's not actually a good baptism. That's the case with me. So I was actually baptized in a Oneness Pentecostal church. So instead of the standard formula, which says we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, I was baptized wholly under the name of Jesus, which is a big deal because they're an anti-Trinitarian sect. There are some people that would say that because of the fact that it was not actually in a Trinitarian formula, that my baptism was illegitimate. The Presbyterian Church in America says that my baptism is illegitimate. So they hold to what the the one that says that the baptism itself is what intrinsically uh, has to be effective. So in theory mm-hmm. you could have like an atheist baptize you as long as they do it correctly. On the other the other end of the view is that it doesn't really matter. As long as the person doing it as long as they're orthodox and they know what they're trying to say.
0: Yeah. yeah. Has anybody ever heard of the Anabaptists? So that's another group that rebaptize that's pretty much what the word Anabaptist means, right? It is rebaptism. Um so the Anabaptists are the umbrella like the the parent of um, like Mennonites and Amish. It's a big there's a big collection of still extant today um, Anabaptists. But this traces back to the time just after the Reformation in Germany and Switzerland and and France. The Protestants separated from the Catholic Church and then the Anabaptists separated from like the Zwinglians and the Calvinists and started rebaptizing people. And so then the Calvinists started killing the Anabaptists and the Anabaptists are generally pacifists, but then there was one random group of Anabaptists that decided they wanted to conquer Europe, and so they took over a city. And then the Calvinists killed all of them and then assumed that all Anabaptists were these maniacal people that wanted to take over Europe. And so then most of the Anabaptists were killed in Europe. So, so yeah, baptism is a big deal. And it, which also, yeah,
1: also that whole episode just goes to show that, you know, the Protestant church is just, you know, everyone gives the Catholic Church a lot of trouble for
0: the Crusades, but the Protestants had more than enough killing on their own. Uh, and, well, and the irony here is that you can say a lot of things about the the what was going on with the Crusades, and, you know, it was basically political, and the Catholic Church had become such a huge organization that a lot of people in it were merely, you know, it was just political stuff, right? But, the Calvinists had only been around for like 50 years and they were already going around and, you know, killing off other people groups and stuff. And these are Calvinists, right? You know, one more one more question if it can take up 3 minutes.
2: I mean, like I already have my own views on this, but what are y'all's views on if like babies that die
0: can go to heaven? And I'm pretty sure Zachary wrote an entire article for the website on this, which I have never read. So this is actually a really really interesting question.
1: the the eternal destiny of infants. Uh, So there are obviously, like most things, there's a spectrum. On the far far end, uh, you have what's called infant universalism, which says that all infants are intrinsically they're either intrinsically good or they are, you know, they're not stained by sin. Whatever the, the answer is, but essentially, if they die before like the age of accountability, then they'll be redeemed because you know they didn't do anything wrong. On the far far end, on the complete other side. The infants were born into sin, original sin, if you will. Uh, and because they didn't do anything to be redeemed, they are intrinsically damned. And so they are all sent to hell. So there's a view in Catholicism that, that says that unbaptized babies specifically, that if the stains of original sin are not washed off in uh, their initial baptism, then they are condemned and they will, they will be sent to hell.
0: And uh, remind us how you know this. And my
1: source for this, I was getting to there, <laughs> My source for this is uh, the video game adaptation of Dante's Inferno, <laughs> where you fight through all the levels of Hell, and in the level of Limbo, there are unbaptized babies that are like flying around. But I checked, but I did, I did read into it. I did read into it, and that's actually a legitimate view, not necessarily a universal view of the Catholic Church, but it is. It's definitely more common there than it is in Protestant churches. Then in between, you have a wide view. Of all kinds of crazy things which is simply which essentially boil down to some go to heaven and some don't one uh one of the views particularly strong among calvinists is to say that uh oh well let me let me say this so what what objection would there be to infant universalism in particular one of the biggest ones is it says if every baby that dies in their infancy goes to heaven then that means that every abortion ends with another soul in heaven or another angel or however you want to say it which essentially says that makes abortion into something that's good that's the best thing you can do for your kid is ensure that they're redeemed, right? By killing them. I, that's what—that's the argument. And that's kind of like the extreme version. But there is a little bit of weight to it because you have to be a lot more reflective on why killing people is wrong or why murdering people is wrong. And some people say that infant universalism gives a justification for abortion. Um, I don't think that's a particularly good argument, but it is one of the more common ones. Then along the along the spectrum, you have some people that say... The Calvinists in particular will say that just like God has elect people that are predestined to heaven on earth as adults, they're also predestined angels and they're also predestined infants. So there are some that whenever they die in their infancy, some are elected and some aren't. Uh, You have some people that say that infants just disappear, they don't ever go to heaven or hell because it's not a meaningful question. And then you have some that say this is something that's really weird that God knows what choice they would have made had they been born. And then God judges them based on that, based on that decision. Uh, so if God knows that if they had been born, that they would have been a Christian, then God takes them into the new creation. Uh, and if God yes. knows that they would have rebelled,
0: then He them so this there. is to say, in the nearest possible world yes. to the actual world, In, in the nearest, if they yes. are redeemed, then they will be redeemed. Yeah. The I, other, the corollary that the opposing position to that could be that all infants that die in infancy are transworldly damned.
1: Yeah. That's another possibility too. I think that honestly, the safest route is the is a combination of the universalism one and the predestined one. That is, it's up to God. It's completely in God's hands. Whatever He wants to do, and I just happen to think because it, it makes me happy that God happens to, by His own choice, elect all of the infants that die in heaven. There's no scriptural basis for that at all. But this is one of those things where there's also been a huge, long, protracted debate over like one or two verses. One of the verses is whenever David's son dies, um, and he says something about knowing that he'll see him again in the future. I don't think that's a good one. I think at most that only shows you what David thought about the matter, but it doesn't actually give you any true didactic teaching.
0: So, so most what you could say is that it seems consistent with God's character that He has provided some means for for salvation of infants that die in infancy. Yeah, um, but there's—I mean—there's I mean, there's no positive evidence for that. It just seems most yeah. consistent with his character. Yeah, and we actually did do a podcast episode on this. You did
1: by yourself. Um, also, I've not listened to that. Oh yeah. Well, you contributed your voice in the intro. So... <laughs>